Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Art Blog Radio. I'm your host for today, Whit Lopez. I'm super thrilled to be sitting here in the gallery at the Center for Art and Wood. If you're not familiar with the Center for Art and Wood, it's a really wonderful organization that focuses on wood. <laughs> it's, it's located at 141 North 3rd Street, and they've been kind enough today to let me record the podcast from the gallery. And I am very honored to be sitting here with the artist whose work is on display and that you'll be able to see tonight because today is First Friday and we all know what First Friday is in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a chance for you to walk around the city and go to all the galleries and see all the shows. So if you're listening to this, make sure that you make your way over to the Center for Art and Wood to see this show. And the show is by Damien Davis and it's called Color Cargo. So welcome to the show, Damien. Thank you for having me. No, this is awesome. So what got you into woodworking? Uh, yeah, that's been kind of a crazy experience. I, I just sort of love using the computer to make objects, and everything that I do is kind of mediated through some kind of digital means. But with that, I'm really interested in making objects that feel very like seductive and inviting. And because of that, I like using materials like wood that um, sort of draw you in and make you want to touch. I mean, you shouldn't touch anything in this show, but they make you want to touch <laughs> and <laughs> make you want to sort of think about uh, that tactile experience, yeah. So uh, I like wood because it has this power to draw you in and it's a material that we've all lived with since we were born. It's, it's, it's a very familiar material, and that familiarity opens up a space to have other conversations. No, that's awesome. And it's true, too. Yeah. Wood is super familiar. So last night, I came here for the bandsaw bash mm -hmm. that was here at the gallery, and you talked about how you had stopped making work publicly for about a decade. Yeah. And, uh, and instead, you decided to go back to school. Uh, can you talk about that? Like, what prompted you to stop making work publicly? Yeah, um, I think it came primarily from uh, not having the best experience in art school. Um, you know, I got my undergrad at New York University. Let's just blow that up right now. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just felt really dissatisfied with the curriculum in a lot of ways. I, I kind of got really uh, discouraged by being in all these classes as like often the only black person and the only queer person uh, where that experience wasn't talked about or acknowledged, you know, where we just didn't talk about artists that sort of fit my narrative. And it kind of got me to a point where I felt like there wasn't a place for me in the art world as a, as a visual artist. Um, you know, I recognize that there are and continue to be lots of artists that sort of fit those molds, but for me it didn't seem like there was any pathway to like make a living off of it, to be like as successful as I wanted to be. So I kind of like just gave up, started making like super secret things that I wouldn't show anyone. Uh, and then taking on this other track where I got my master's in visual arts administration. So like grant writing, fundraising, advocacy, marketing, all these things that art school doesn't traditionally teach you. Uh, and it was through that that I kind of came back around to being an artist because then all of a sudden I looked at myself and was like, 
oh, I have all these skills to sort of have my own art career and not have to like rely on someone else to like bless me with like their access or their mm. network. I could start to build those things out for myself. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been this interesting process where it's just been about like taking these skills that I got from arts administration and using them to be my own advocate and push my own career forward. And that's the thing that kind of brought me back around. Because now it's like, I don't have to worry about or even think about making the kind of work that other people want from me. I can just make what makes me happy and then treat myself as my own uh, gallerist, curator, dealer, whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's also like, just taking off of that, that's really great advice for a lot of folks who are currently visual artists or performing artists to be your own advocate and to find ways and to learn about how to do that. Yeah. Because a lot of times those of us who have gone to art school or those of us who have gotten into the arts outside of art school or even those of us who have done like private coaching or private classes, a lot of those classes don't revolve around the business end of yeah. the arts and it doesn't revolve around how to be our own advocate and sometimes that leads to folks being taken advantage of. No, definitely. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. So thank you. So you, you mentioned queerness um, yes. a little while ago. I mean, you also mentioned blackness. And so how do those two things, how do those two portions of your identity influence your work? Um, yeah, I guess for me, it, it's really about, uh, again, the visibility. It's about sort of allowing yourself to exist in these spaces that traditionally might not uh, be as welcoming as they should be or historically have been. And just kind of... Can I curse? Absolutely. Please oh, curse <laughs> just like all, curse all <laughs> <the hell you laughs> but just like you know, figuring out a way to like go in and like fuck it up. So for me, that kind of happens um, in two ways aesthetically. Like I'm really interested in like the aesthetics of uh, black folk and the ways in which we mark people, places, and things as black. Mm. And that's largely accomplished. Like, if you come to the show, you'll see that I'm working with this kind of loosely fixed lexicon of shapes that I've been developing for myself over time. And all of the shapes really sort of come from this critical question of, like, you know, what is it, how, how does something get sort of marked as, like, a black thing? Or, like, a, a thing about black people? Right, right, right. But hopefully doing that in a way that's not... Um, as obvious all the yeah. time, you know, something that like you're you're looking at and you're reading and you're you're registering it as being like something that's about black people, mm. but your ability to like articulate what each of those individual things has to do with black people uh, being a thing that takes like time and it takes like consideration and thoughtfulness. And then like the queer thing from an aesthetic standpoint is like I'm also always asking myself this critical question, like how can you take these conventions of art making and queer them or turn mm. them on their ear? So when, I, when we talk about queerness, we're talking about um, you know, something that's outside mm -hmm. of like the quote-unquote norm, something mm -hmm. that's like pushing back against that. And for me, that comes from like a set of really basic critical questions that I constantly ask myself when I'm making work. And, it's like, and it, a lot of it has to do with the ways in which work is traditionally presented. So like, does it have to have right angles? Does mm. it have to be in a frame? Is there a way for the work to exist in a space where it's drawing 
and a painting and a sculpture and a collage all at the same time. And when you come to the show, like hopefully you'll kind of feel that energy too. You'll sort of see these objects and hopefully they'll feel like they won't be able to sort of fit in one of those categories. And like, so when I talk about like queerness and like the way that I produce the work, I'm kind of looking at it from that perspective. Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you. But then also, you know, just to add on to that, it's like, I don't necessarily think that, uh, like, like the same like, quote unquote queer aesthetics that we're used to seeing, I'm hopefully trying to like bring something new to the table or bring like a different way to attack that mm. where it's not just like, um, I don't know, the things that you're used to seeing, that you, the, the kind of images that come up in your head when we talk about queerness, like thinking about a different way to, to have that conversation about like what does it mean to sort of live as a queer person and what does it mean to live as a person that's like trying to reject some of these norms or mm. push back on them or question them. Mm. Yeah. Cool, cool. So last night, something that, uh, something that you said really uh, kind of spoke to me about this idea of like the plastic that you work with or the acrylic sheeting yeah. um, is easier to work with than the wood. You were saying the wood is really difficult and it fights back. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do all this uh, work that's using machines and using, like, laser cutters and CNC routers and stuff, and the plastic, when you cut it with the laser, it, like, it behaves, you know? It does exactly <laughs> what you tell it to do, like, down to the millimeter. The wood, like, you can CNC it, but then you still have to, like, sand it and mm. finish it and, you know, do all this extra stuff to it, so... From the get-go, it's like, okay, you're going to get what you want, but you're still going to have to, like, put in some work. Mm. And then even after that, you know, it can warp, it can change, it can shrink, it can expand, it can, it, it still is, like, part of a, it existed as a living thing at one yeah. point, and that life as a living thing is constantly sort of, like, present in the mm. work, so... It's tough for me because I'm like sort of a freak and I want to have some control over, you know, these shapes and, and I want to know what they're going to do down to the millimeter and the wood doesn't always allow for that. So there, there's, there's something I think uh, interesting or conceptual about this conversation regarding like this material that fights back and maybe having this larger conversation about the other ways that we fight back. Hmm. All these other things. Yeah. Fighting back is good. <laughs> it is. You it know. is. No, I totally agree with you there. So, uh, so yesterday when I was here, and even now as I'm sitting here in the gallery just looking at your work, um, a lot of the acrylic pieces that are on the wooden background, mm -hmm. um, they're familiar shapes to me. Yeah. And I feel like part of the familiarity is because they're associated with aspects of blackness and not just blackness in the United States, but blackness globally. Yeah. Um, and so, and not just current, like current event things, but also historical things. Yeah. So some of the things that I see, right, I see 
a pick, right? A hair pick, uh-huh. which we can say, oh, that's a thing that we can associate with now or with like people with having afros. But then you can also associate it with the comb symbol from Adinkra, mm-hmm. which is from Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of has this duality yeah. here. But even in this duality, it's black, right? Yeah. It's either a black American symbol or it's a, a symbol directly from Ghana. Yeah. Um, you also have the fern, the Adinkra fern and things. Um, and I really, I really, really love that uh, because I love the meaning behind it. So the meaning behind the wooden comb or the pick is kind of this like feminine beauty, feminine qualities and cleanliness. Whereas the symbolism behind the fern is endurance and resourcefulness. So I'm wondering when you selected those images or when you selected those shapes, were you selecting them based on what they mean uh, traditionally or were you also assigning a new meaning to them? It's, it's kind of all of those things. You know, I'm really interested in the power of all of these shapes to kind of like float, uh, for lack of a better term in between all these different readings. And for me, a lot of it is about you know, your lived experience informing your recognition of what these particular shapes do mean or can mean, and the reconciliation between all these uh, disparate shapes in a specific composition becomes uh, uh, an experience that's like unique to you. And mm. hopefully the conversations that come out from like you trying to reconcile some of these associations becomes like this richer conversation that um, all of us can have with each other. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested in like especially especially those kind of shapes where it's like you can pull from these different historical references, but then you can also um, apply these different types of readings. Sometimes super banal and sometimes uh, more pointed. Just having that opportunity to kind of like let the composition uh, exist and let those markers exist and just like rely on the strength of those is, is something that is I'm into. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I really, really appreciate it and I, I dig it. In your piece, Identification, when I came, when I was here last night and while you were talking, I glanced over and it immediately like grabbed me yeah. in, in a way that... Um, was both like because of its beauty, because of the beauty of the piece and the the colors that are selected, just this deep purple, mm-hmm. the browns, the the teal of the plants on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then directly in the middle of it is a picture of a black. It's it's a it's not a picture. Excuse me. <laughs> it's the acrylic sheeting cut out in the shape of a black hoodie with the hands up. Yeah. With the arms up. Yeah. Um, and. That hit me really yeah. hard. That hit me really hard, um, but in a way that I can appreciate. Yeah, because it it's part of like our lived experience mm-hmm. as Black folks in the United States. Um, something that we can identify heavily with, mm-hmm. and that when we see it, we know that it means we know what it means. Yeah, we know where it came from. We know where it started. Yeah, um, and we know the power that it has. Yeah. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? About why you selected um, that? Because I did rec- I did see that it's not only in that piece identification; it's also in a few other pieces. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to um, have these motifs sort of repeat across several works in a singular show. You know that 
shape in particular, it's one of the newer ones. I guess I should preface this by saying um, this language that I'm building out of these shapes, it's, it's a very slow process. Mm. Uh, so it takes me a long time to kind of like settle on a specific shape and decide that that's going to be something that's going to get incorporated into this larger body of work. But, um, you know, I really just wanted a shape that again, it's like undeniably black, but uh, undeniably black in all these ways that um, are sad mm. and are difficult and are frustrating yeah. and, and have um, at least one shape that like directly acknowledges that frustration and also um, have a shape that can sort of function as a placeholder for conversations of um, danger, vulnerability, like, you know, mm. a lot of the shapes that I use, uh, they talk about, like, two sort of major things. They talk about uh, the black body, and then they talk about currency. Mm. And then there's all these, like, larger conversations that have to do with the black body as currency. Mm. Wow. Uh, like, wow. emotional currency, sexual currency, yeah. uh, political currency, uh, and just thinking about the ways in which the black body is constantly politicized, having something that's like representative of a shape that adorns the black body and renders it um, more fearsome or more terrifying or, um, or just renders it all these things that like normally it wouldn't be assigned to like a white body mm. or, or a body of any other sort of race. Um, acknowledging the power of a particular style of garment to simultaneously make us, in the eyes of certain people, scarier but more vulnerable. That was something that I was really kind of trying to key in on and just, you know, the art world recently has been having a lot more direct conversations about Emmett Till, mm. you know, when we're talking about um, sort of like, in my opinion, sort of gross, disgusting depictions of him in like major art institutions, major art exhibits, yeah. or um, super respectful uh, considerations of his life and his body, like at the African American History Museum. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about um, the ways in which harm can be inflicted on the black body or the ways in which, especially, uh, there's another shape that, I don't know, it's like super legible, if, it, if it's super legible, but it sort of represents um, part of a police barricade. I definitely noticed that, yeah. yeah, yeah. At the end of one of those horse things. Yeah, yeah. so just um, having a shape that like acknowledges that, that's not like a traditional like cop shape. Mm. Um, but having that shape exists next to this hoodie shape as an acknowledgement of the ways in which the police are sort of weaponized against black bodies. Wow. You know, like if you're, you know, a white woman who accuses Emmett Till of, you know, being disrespectful to you and then how many years later coming out and saying like, oh yeah, I lied. Yeah, after you've lived your life and after you know, you've lived a full life, yeah, right, right. You Absolutely. know, and there being no consequence for that. Exactly, exactly. You know, this woman is still free, living her life. Absolutely. Um, and there's like an anger in that. There's a frustration in yes, that that, that like needs to come out with the work. So having some of these newer shapes be an acknowledgement of that. Mm. Or even um, there's another shape that's really new that's uh, representative of that wicker chair. 
I don't know if you know the the iconic image of Huey P. Newton. I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, again, it's like thinking about this conversation about um, how we can reclaim some of this imagery or some of this iconography. So you've got, like, Huey P. Newton sitting in, like, a chair that up until that point had largely been representative of, like, you know, European colonialism. Mm. You know, moving into these countries and these spaces and, like, declaring yourself, you know, in charge. So for Huey to like step in and sit in that chair and say like I'm in charge now, mm. having that having that object representative in the work is something that's like very new for me and it's mm. uh, yeah I think um, in a lot of ways the show is kind of like an angry show through the imagery that's getting used but it's also at first blush like very cheerful because it's all these like kind of candy colored absolutely. Objects, but that's that's the thing that I'm really interested in, especially like when we talk about wood and we talk about the plexi, the the plastic, the acrylic, all that stuff. It's it's about creating this um, this finish that's super inviting, that draws you in, and again opens up a space to talk about these things that are super fucked up. Absolutely, and I'm actually really glad that that was part of the show. Yeah. Um, when when I was first told about the show and sent a press release, um, I saw the title alone, Color Cargo, and I was like, "Is this a reference?" To yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, could this possibly be like a play on you know colored cargo mm -hmm. and you know the idea of like black people, you know, black bodies being cargo and being transported yeah. and you know like you said earlier used as currency yeah or used as part of you know being commercialized mm -hmm. um for use so yeah was that actually a play on that oh like, definitely <laughs> definitely yeah i mean there was a, okay, i mean awesome, it was the, awesome. the show was almost called colored cargo mm -hmm. and you know just in keeping with the the sort of strategies that i like to use we sort of felt like that it might be uh how do i say it too obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too obvious and like maybe too off-putting. Mm. You know, I've I've had this conversation with people before, but you know, we're just so conditioned to recognize and tune out the traditional aesthetics of protests. Mm. Wow. So it's like how do you protest something or how do you have those kinds of conversations in a way where it's about like kind of seducing the person in mm, and bringing wow. them in. I call it like laying the trap. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's Amazing. like all the pieces are like, you know, it, it's the cheese to kind of pull you in. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's so pretty. It's so shiny. It's so sparkly. What does this shape mean? <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you know, and it, it it works to varying levels of success, but that's that's always the goal is to is to draw you in and hopefully pull your attention to something that you normally would like recognize immediately as something that was going to challenge you yeah. and steer away from. Mm. So it's about like steering you towards the uncomfortable stuff. That's wonderful. That is that's great. It's also a great way to educate folks. You know, especially if folks don't recognize what something is and the level of impact that it has on not only you as an artist, but also on an entire community. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I really love that. Um, yesterday, mm -hmm. you spoke about the impermanence of your work um, and the impermanence of some of these pieces. So a lot of the pieces, the 
acrylic on it is attached to the wood in the background by bolts, by wing nuts. Um, and so you were saying that some of these can possibly be changed around if you choose to do so. Yeah. Um, why did you choose to kind of make pieces that, they're, they're brilliant and they're beautiful and they're amazing, but they're also impermanent? Like what role does impermanence play for you in this? I guess, uh, you know, for me, everything is made yeah, I don't use like glues or adhesives of any kind to hold the work together. It's all just held together through um, the tension of this hardware. And I'm kind of trying to figure out a way to have the mode of production um, say something conceptually about where we are right now. So, you know, if everything's held together with tension, that means something. If everything can be taken apart, and put back together, reconfigured as something new. That means something. So just having the potential for um, these things to take on another life is something that's appealing to me. But even if that's something that doesn't happen with a specific piece, this acknowledgement that things can be broken down and can be changed is an important message that I want to always convey with the work. You know, especially when we're having a conversation about like, cargo, artwork, artifacts, people as, as objects, um, there has to be an acknowledgement that like, that shit can be broken up mm. if like, we work towards that, if we're willing wow. to work towards that. Wow. Um, and I don't ever want the work to um, exist solely in like, a space where you know, it's just like participating in this like traditional art historical like bullshit. Like, mm. it's just not. It's not for me. That's real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. So, something that I noticed earlier uh, when I was looking at your piece, defensive toward mm -hmm. the bottom, there are two cowrie shells right next to each other. Now, you mentioned earlier currency, and we know that cowrie shells represent currency, like mm -hmm. they were once used as currency yeah. um, on the African continent. Mm -hmm. um, but they're directly above a red shape that looks like, <laughs> it looks like a downturned smile. And so when I saw it, it hit me in two ways, right? I w the first thing I thought was, these look like eyes, yeah. right? And they look like the eyes on uh, Elegua or Ishu. Mm -hmm figure, mm -hmm. um, but then the mouth, because of the shape of it, it's almost like a clown mouth or like a, the mouth that you would see in like a Sambo uh, yeah. picture. Yeah. So I was like, okay, so what, what is this? Like, am I imagining that it's a face? <laughs> is it actually, you know, is it actually representative of Sambo or is this, uh, you know, is it representative of Elegua, uh -huh. um, who is an Orisha, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, hopefully yeah. it's all of those things, you know, and, th and that's kind of the, the slippage that I want. I want um, to pull from these different references, these different sources, and jam them together in ways that feel, um, like, feel almost uncomfortably natural, mm. if that makes sense. So it's like, you know, and I say this all the time, it's like our brains are programmed to humanize everything that's around us. <laughs> to like recognize yeah. these faces and be like, oh, it's like me because it's got two eyes and a mouth <laughs> or whatever. 
but yet we struggle yeah. so hard to like recognize the humanity in other people, like wow. other actual human beings, and like wow. yeah. that's fucked up. And like, where does that come from? Like, right. so if there's a way to create work or to create um, sort of moments within the work that like kind of leverage that, kind of leverage this idea that like, oh, I see a face, but this face is like made up of like some stuff that is making me think about all this other stuff mm. that's problematic with like the history of depictions of black people wow. and stuff, yeah. So hopefully it's, it's, it's doing that, that duty. But then it's also like, you know, maybe there's a way to have this other conversation about like currency or, you know, we've all seen like that trope in cartoons or whatever where it's like the eyes turn into dollar signs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, what if like the cowrie shell is money and then your eyes turn into cowrie shells? It's like, mm. what happens when your eyes turn into like African money? Mm. I like that. I mean, yeah, it's something I like else. I don't know what it means exactly, but it, it's something else. No, definitely, definitely. So aside from the stuff that's on the walls here, mm -hmm. the, the collages, mm -hmm. um, you have boxes. There are cargo boxes on the floor, and they're also, I'm, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't even know what you would call them. What do, what do you call these nice. big shapes? Uh, like technically, or I mean, they're all crates. Okay, I'll, I'll start. All crates. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, and you know, the other element to this show is that it's kind of using this pseudo-scientific personality tests, the looser color tests, mm. as, uh, as an aesthetic departure point. So the way the test works is you've got like these eight swatches of color, and through um, the way in which you organize those colors, uh, based solely on like instinct, like your personal like emotional state at the time, the test can allegedly detect all these other um, psychological, emotional mm. things about you. Mm. Uh, the problem with the test for me is that it relies on this sort of asserted universality of our relationships to each of these colors. Mm. And that's where um, I'm kind of trying to push back because my feeling is anything that's sort of taking uh, a hard stance that like, oh, this thing is universal. This is something that like everyone feels the same way about. You've already kind of lost the game. Right, right. If there isn't a, an open acknowledgement that we're all coming from somewhere different. Absolutely. We've all got these different experiences of like color, you know, how we see the world. Definitely. If there isn't an acknowledgement of that, we, you know, you've kind of lost the conversation before it even starts. Absolutely. And when we talk about like that, applied in a pseudo-scientific way um, as a means to sort of justify um, the way in which we place like emotional, psychological value on people, that's the slippery slope that allows you to say like, oh, well, black people are like less than human and mm. they can be moved as objects. Mm. So it's kind of about trying to take this, um, this one iteration of... Um, science, for lack of a better term, and its application towards um, like the harm of black bodies and kind of try to like flip that on its ear. So mm. there's 10 crates in the show. Uh, two crates are um, 
earlier crates that I had done uh, to transport work as part of this ongoing conversation about like you know commodity and, and black bodies and and all of that. And then there are eight crates, uh, and each of them is painted a different color mm. in the Lucia color test. And hopefully there's some uh, content that can be inferred from that. They're all the size. They're all big enough to sort of put bodies into. Yeah. So I think that that was Definitely really... Definitely noticed that. Yeah. Um, you know, some bodies, like, more adult or more developed than others. Uh, there's definitely some boxes that are only big enough to put children in. But I think that, that it was important to have an acknowledgement of that. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, they're all sort of designed to make you think about people potentially existing inside of them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Through the scale. No, definitely. Well, I really, really appreciate your work. Um, I'm looking forward to interacting with it more. Um, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Our Blog Radio. Well, it's been you. an absolute pleasure <laughs> speaking with you about these things and getting to talk with you, not only about art, but also about using art as a tool for activism. Yes. So thank you so much for sharing that. And if y'all are listening, make sure you make your way down to the Center for Art and Wood. Once again, it's at 141 North 3rd Street in Old City, Philadelphia. So yeah, get yourself down there. And this is Wit. I am signing out for the day. Bye, y'all.